Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What's it take to become the next governor of Connecticut? Depends on who you ask, but we've been asking the gubernatorial candidates themselves in the days leading up to the August 14th primary. You can see those interviews on our Facebook page. Just click on the video link on the left side of the page. Now today where we live, Republican Tim Herbst is in studio with us. The former selectman of the town of Trumbull is running against four other candidates. What questions do you have for him? Join us. The number 860-275-7266. And you can find us on Facebook Live. Search for where we live at your comment or question below the video stream. And as always, tweet us at where we live. I want to welcome Tim Herbst into our studio. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, some of our listeners may not know much about the, the town of Trumbull. They may not even know who you are. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I had the honor and privilege for eight years to lead uh, my hometown of Trumbull, Connecticut. It's a town of about 37,000 people, uh, just north of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, I am the son of retired public educators. My uh, mom and dad are retired school administrators. I went through the Trumbull public school system. I graduated from Trumbull High School in 1998. Uh, and then thereafter, I went to Trinity College right here in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, where I graduated with a BA in political science in 2002. Uh, thereafter, I earned a law degree from Pace University School of Law in 2007. And during that time, I was actually on the Planning and Zoning Commission in Trumbull. Uh, and I served as chairman uh, for the last four years of, of my term. And then in 2009, the leaders of my party approached me, and they asked me to challenge a very popular four-term Democratic incumbent uh, in, the home, uh, in the hometown of the then Democratic state chair, Nancy DiNardo. And they said to me, you know, you're probably not going to win, uh, but we need you to, to get in the race to, to help the ticket and, to, and make it competitive. So I uh, agreed to do it, gave up my seat on planning and zoning, went all in, um, wanted to make sure that I didn't embarrass myself. So I knocked on 8,000 doors, lost 17 pounds. I only got bit by two dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and on election night, uh, we won by 12 points and, and swept every boarding commission. And for eight years, um, I held super majorities on all of our legislative bodies uh, during the duration of my term. And uh, I was elected when I was 29 years old. So it was kind of uh, a little intimidating to walk into a situation like the one I inherited in 2009. I inherited a pension fund that was only funded at 27%. There was more money going out to pay pension beneficiaries than coming into the fund. Taxes had increased 54% in the eight years preceding my term. Our um, credit rating was downgraded the year before I took office. Grandless showed negative growth. We had a lot of insider deals, a lot of special interests treating Trumbull like their own ATM. So uh, really went to work to bring reform, uh, focusing on the next generation, not the next election. And I'm proud that after eight years, we balanced eight budgets, cut taxes twice, reformed our pension system, fully funded our obligations on an annual basis, upgraded our credit rating, Grew our commercial economy 64.5%. 
uh, and our school system earned national recognition from Realtor.com, Family Circle Magazine, and Caldwell Banker. So uh, really proud of the Trumbull turnaround story. Uh, and I don't say it in a bragging way because I, I was blessed to work with a tremendous team of people that helped me accomplish the mission. But I tell people as I campaign for the office of governor that if we're going to change Hartford, we need to change the people we send there. And every, if ever there was a time uh, for proven reformers and Hartford outsiders, it's now. And that's one of the things that you campaign on, that you are a Hartford outsider. That's something that uh, your opponent, Steve Upsitnik, is also uh, campaigning on. Um, when you think about what you've done in Trumbull, you know, what gives you the advantage over these four other names that will be on the Republican primary? Again, some that have uh, more name recognition than yourself. Well, I think that when you look at actions over, over words, over the course of the last year and a half, since I got into this race, I have shown a willingness to, to take on the status quo in Hartford, to not be afraid to call it like I see it, to call out the things that I think need to be changed. So when I, Such as? So when I was the only Republican to call out the fact that legislators pad their pensions with mileage reimbursement, that wasn't a popular thing to do, uh, but with people in, in both parties up in Hartford, but it was the right thing to do. When I called out the fact that the political class in Hartford receives better health care than what members of Congress receive at a time when our residents are really struggling, that wasn't maybe po the politically correct thing to do with the Hartford Insiders, but it was something that resonated with taxpayers. When I was the only Republican to say that we have to stop judicial activism, and I was the only Republican to stand up initially to oppose the nomination of uh, Andrew McDonald as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, um, I think I've shown a willingness to stand up and, and, and be principled. And I think people want a principled leader. And you know what? In 2014, I had the honor and privilege of being the Republican nominee for state treasurer. I took on a very popular 16-year uh, incumbent who in 2010 received the most votes of any statewide candidate. Four years later, I was proud that we ran the closest statewide election of 2014. It was closer than governor. Uh, less than 1% separated the two of us. We did that with less than a million dollars. We did that by winning three out of five congressional districts and 114 out of 169 towns and cities. So I think I've proven an ability to, to be a competitive candidate who has a message that does resonate. And I think of the five of us, nobody's working harder than I am. That I can assure you. This is where we live. You're hearing Tim Herbst, Republican candidate for governor. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Also find us on Facebook Live. Add your question below the video stream. Let's get into some of uh, the big challenges that the state of Connecticut has. And um, we often have asked uh, the candidates, and this is something that's talked about a lot, and that is the, uh, the debt liabilities that the state holds, uh, the pension fund that has been underfunded for decades. How do you propose, uh, you know, tackling this multi-billion dollar deficit. Um, it's been widely reported, I think, starting in January. The new governor of Connecticut will have a $4.6 billion uh, two-year budget hole to figure out how to fix. So what are some of your ideas? Well, this goes really to the core of the decision that Republican primary voters are going to have to make on August 14th, because we have candidates that are telling people what they want to hear to win an election, and I'm telling people what they need to hear to save the state. So we're not going to be able to eliminate the income tax or any tax for that matter until we recognize that we first must dig out of this hole, this $86 billion hole of unfunded pension and retiree health care liabilities. Unfunded liability, I, I often tell people, unfunded liability, that term, that's code language for future tax increases. So if we don't deal with this problem right out of the gate, the deficit will continue to grow because the liabilities will continue to consume more and more of the total state budget. 
services that directly impact people, educational reimbursement, municipal aid, social service programs are going to continue to be put on the chopping block in the name of funding uh, this liability that continues to grow. And at the same time, the vicious cycle will continue with the mass exodus from the state. So I have said that if I'm elected governor, I will send a budget repair bill to the legislature in my first 45 days in office. That includes meaningful pension and benefit reform and restructuring. Now, let me just say, I think I bring a unique perspective in the sense that I have two retired parents that are receiving pensions uh, from the state of Connecticut, and they are concerned as retirees as to whether their retirement security will be in place um, for the years to come. What I've said is we have to honor the commitments that we've made to our retirees, but we have to recognize that we have to curb this problem in a very meaningful way. So I've talked about doing what I did in Trumbull, putting new hires into a defined contribution plan. We're going to have to look at increasing contribution levels depending upon years of service. The state of Connecticut needs to get out of the retiree health care business. I, I thought the General Assembly did pass uh, with one of the latest concessions that they were able to reach a concessions agreement that new hirees are not able to get this, the traditional pension that um, Connecticut workers have received that they are now paying into 401k. In part. I don't, I don't think it went far enough. I don't think the contribution increases went far enough. Um, one thing I hear from teachers and public sector employees at the municipal level is they get very frustrated when they're contributing 8 or 9 or 10 percent towards their pensions. And we have some state employee unions pre-CBAC uh, reforms that were 0 to 2 percent and now are 2 to 4 percent. There needs to be greater equity with contributions. And look, um, we contribute one cent on the dollar towards our OPEB liabilities, retiree health care. Um, you know, I think the state needs to get out of the retiree health care business uh, because we're clearly not funding it the way we should. We can't keep up with this pace. And we are giving out benefits that are, as I said, more generous and more rich than what members of Congress receive. And we know that because five current and former members of the Congress in both parties elect to keep their Connecticut health care coverage over what the federal government provides because it's that generous and that rich. So it really calls into question um, where I think we need to attack right out of the gate. Uh, and what I want to do is I want to have the conversation with the rank and file about recognizing, look, uh, this isn't your fault as much, as much as it is the fault of decision makers over 40 years that have consistently kicked the can and not properly funded our pension system. I, I think we could go back to the 1930s and show evidence that we were not properly funding our obligations. So this has happened over a period of time. And it's not going to be fixed. It, you know, instantly. It's going to take a period of time to come out of this. And it's going to have to take a recognition that, yes, we have to make tough choices. Yes, we have to bring reform. But we're also making decisions that deal with people's lives. And I have to tell you, I think that's the difference between some of us that have served in government and uh, some of us that have never served in government that think they're going to wave a wand and, and solve all of our problems. You know, when you make decisions in government, you know, it's not just a, it's not just a balance sheet. You are making decisions that impact people's lives, um, and it's it's critical that you show the leadership that recognizes that when coming up with solutions for the long term. How uh, much are your hands tied because of the latest CBAC agreement that doesn't expire till 2027? You're talking about pension reform, but yes. again, you've got to combat a, a two-year $4.6 billion budget. How do you do that? Where do you cut spending? Well, look, I did not agree with a Republican governor agreeing to a 20-year labor agreement. And I did not agree with the Democratic governor who extended it for another 10. Um, as a municipal leader, had I gone to my town council and told them that I wanted to enter into a labor contract for 10 years, 
um, they would have laughed me right out of the council chambers. This isn't done at the local level with, with, with labor contracts. And it just goes to show the tremendous disconnect between Hartford and those of us at the ground level. Uh, the next governor is going to have to bring all parties back to the table. CBAC is going to have to be reopened um, because it accounts for nearly 40 percent of the total fixed costs in the state budget. And to your point, if you're going to close the budget deficit and deal with the unfunded liabilities, your hands are tied uh, when an agreement that affects much of that has been extended for 10 years. So we're going to have to we're going to have to reopen it. Um, we're going to have to look at statutory remedies to deal with the issue uh, and legal remedies for that matter. I'd like to avoid that, but um, to go into court. Well, look, there's federal precedent in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, and I can assure you that Lori Pelletier and the AFL-CIO knows this. Uh, there's there's federal precedent in our circuit case out of Buffalo. Uh, on point to the very issues that we're talking about that is favorable to the state's position uh, in terms of affordability in the long term. Uh, I would like to avoid that, uh, but there there has to be a recognition that, you know, over the next 10 years, we can't sustain this and close the budget deficit, have a truly balanced budget, and start to grow our economy again. Join our conversation here on Where We Live with Tim Herbst, the former selectman of Trumbull, now a Republican candidate for governor. Uh, the primary is August 14th. If you have a question for him, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook Live. Add your comment below the video stream. Uh, we're actually getting a tweet from David. Uh, he writes, Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton turned a $6 billion budget deficit into a $1 billion surplus by taxing the rich. What do you think about this, Tim Herbst? Well, I think if you look at the billions of dollars of wealth that has left our state because of our existing tax, uh, tax structure, um, I am not going to raise taxes on anyone if I'm elected governor because we've seen what has happened when you do that because we've had two of the largest tax increases in the state's history over the last eight years. Um, you know what? Uh, I understand that people feel, let, you know, let's tax the wealthy and you know, let them you know, pay more. But here's the problem with that. They have 49 other places in the country they can go to if they don't like how we tax them. And what has happened, especially in southwestern Connecticut, where a lot of wealthy people live, is because of the estate tax and our tax structure here in the state of Connecticut, they're leaving the state and they're going to other states that have more favorable tax treatment. I don't want people to leave because, for example, the two I've called for eliminating the estate tax, which was discussed in this most recent legislative session. To me, that's a no-brainer because the 200 to $220 million of revenue that you lose in the collection of that tax pales in comparison to the, to the millions upon millions of dollars of other tax revenue you're losing, income tax revenue, other revenue you're losing with these people leaving the state in exodus. If you drive through southwestern Connecticut, you will see um, runway strips of uh, for sale signs with um, houses not selling. I might also add that our property values have not rebounded in Connecticut since 2007, which is, which is horrifying. You know, we're going on 11 years and our, and our real estate values and the return on investment that people will not receive based upon the investment they made in the long term will not be realized. That, that's a big problem. So I am not in favor of increasing taxes. Uh, I will also tell you that um, that governor uh, in Minnesota um, – not too popular these days from what I understand. And, um, you know, that, that state is shifting in terms of, you know, where they fall on the political spectrum. So I take the position that we can't keep raising taxes. It's got to be a combination of targeted tax relief that adds up, not pie-in-the-sky promises. 
with spending reductions, with reforms on the pension side. Uh, it needs to be a combination of factors. You're not going to cut your way out of this problem. You're not going to grow your way out of this problem exclusively. There needs to be a combination of all of the above to realize real recovery in our state. Well, let me ask you again, because you mentioned, obviously, pension reform. I had asked previous about um, where you would cut spending. So give us some ideas of where you would cut spending, uh, not just focused on uh, the, C- the labor agreements. Sure. In Connecticut, for example, we deliver our social services in a hybrid model. So some of those services are delivered by state government. Some of those services are delivered by uh, private not-for-profits. One thing we have found is that a lot of these private not-for-profits do a really, really good job at a third or a fraction of the cost. I think we should do more of that. I've seen projections that would lead us to believe that we could save in excess of $500 million doing that. I know we talked about CBAC, but you know when I talk about um, you know healthcare costs, if we were on Massachusetts public sector employee healthcare plan, I think we would save anywhere from 600 to 620 million dollars a year. Um, I have to tell you, I look at um, places like Whiting uh, Forensic uh, Hospital in southeastern Connecticut. You know, Senator Summers has been a leader in this area in exposing the, the abuses uh, in the system. The costs associated with delivering some of the services in these facilities are, are very excessive. And I think we could deliver uh, better service for a fraction of the cost. I will tell you that I think UConn Health Center, um, if, if I were elected governor, I would look at uh, selling UConn Health Center. Uh, I think that it, it has taken on a tremendous burden on our budget. Um, I, I am not pleased with the accountability or lack thereof um, based upon uh, examples that we have seen. Um, I think that we need to eliminate the Board of Regents of Higher Education. I just think it's another layer of bureaucracy uh, that just creates redundancies and inefficiencies. I think the Department of Motor Vehicles uh, needs to be revamped and decentralized. There are a whole host of areas that I would focus on. Uh, Jay is <clears throat> calling from Branford. Jay, you're on where we live. Go ahead. Jay, are you there? Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask about pensions. Um, Mr. Herbst said that he was in favor of protecting the existing obligations to pensioners like his parents, uh, but he wanted to make big changes going forward. The fact is that almost all of the pension shortfall is due to existing retirees who are already vested and who already have their rights under the pension. And there's not a lot of fat or a lot of changes going forward that can be made without attacking the pensions of existing uh, folks. So I don't understand his claim that he's going to do both things. Tim Herbst? I think we were talking about retirees, and then we were talking about existing employees. So let me clarify. Um, I've been pretty clear on new hires. Existing employees, we are going to have to look at contribution levels uh, based upon years of service. Um, we're going to just have to look at that. There's no, there's no way around that. Um, I will acknowledge and I agree with the fact that a lot of the pension problems stem from previous negotiations and or lack of funding that have now uh, snowballed to where we are right now. Um, I think the other way you deal with this problem, to be quite honest, is that you have to start treating them, treating our pension uh, obligations and costs as a fixed cost. Some people question whether, I mean, there was debate a couple years ago whether that should be included under the constitutional spending cap, which 
doesn't appear to exist anymore. I think you have to treat your pension obligations as a fixed cost. You can't overstate the rate of return on your pension uh, investments because you don't want to mask the true unfunded liability. So I would take the approach, and to Governor Malloy's credit, while I don't agree with him on much of anything, I will give him credit for the fact that he began the process of treating a lot of the pension problems as a fixed cost that we could no longer kick the can on. And I will give him credit for that. I just think we can do more. Well, we need to take a break now. Uh, Tim Herbst in studio with us here on Where We Live, former selectman of Trumbull, Connecticut, Republican gubernatorial candidate. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You have a question for Tim Herbst. Join us, 860-275-7266. We're going to find out uh, if elected, if he makes it through to the general election and is elected, what kind of policies and laws uh, would he uh, roll back from the Malloy administration? We're going to ask him after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're bringing you another interview in our Meet the Candidate series. Today, GOP gubernatorial candidate Tim Herbst is in studio with us. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook Live. Search for Where We Live. Also, tweet us at Where We Live. Now, in the race to become the next governor of Connecticut, the various campaigns often look to Governor Malloy's record in office. Now, what laws or Malloy policies would Republican gubernatorial hopeful Tim Herbst roll back if he's elected? And I spent a lot of time reading your recent law and order mm. plan. I'm going to just uh, give a little summary. Uh, part of it is support law enforcement, bring a new vision and accountability to the leadership of the prison system, eliminate Governor Malloy's early prison release program. So let's start with that. Uh, what What is the issue with this particular program? The issue with the program is if you look at the statistics of those that entered the program in the first year of its inception, and if you look at the repeat offenses committed... 95% of those that were admitted in the first year of the program committed a repeat offense, 95%. And if you look at specific cases, namely the most recent case we had in Griswold, where a, a family was brutally murdered, the person was released early from prison. If you look at the situation in Meriden uh, a few years back, where Frankie the Razor Resto is, is released early from prison, kills a shop owner, um, the program did not do enough to distinguish and delineate between nonviolent and violent offenses, in my opinion. I think when you look at the statistics, and by the way, I was very specific when I rolled the plan out in citing the number of cases that have been repeat offenses and the types of crimes that have been committed, I think it compromises public safety. And I have to tell you something. Um, what bothers me is when we, when we have an early prison release program that has proven to be an abject failure at a time when this governor over the course of the last eight years has decimated decimated the Connecticut State Police uh, when this governor took office. What do you say that? What do you mean? Well, um, so what, I know there's sure. a minimum level of uh, troops, uh, Connecticut police troops that you want to see uh, restored. So where are we now? Okay. So when the governor took office, we were at about 1,280. We are now down to about 910, well below what is considered minimum manning levels. Uh, when you look at the divisions of the state police, if you look at the troop uh, in uh, Westbrook, barracks, they should have 50 troopers. They're down to 26. Our firearms trafficking unit, one person. Auto theft division, two people. Um, I can tell you it, the divisions are not being properly staffed. And quite frankly, uh, if you're not going to invest in law enforcement, um, you know, what are you going to invest in? Because if you don't have you know, public safety as your highest priority, 
if we don't have a safe state, people aren't going to want to live here and move here. So I just think that the priorities have been misaligned. Uh, you know, I will tell you that a lot of law-abiding citizens have have felt uh, over the last eight years that they have been the target of of, of much uh, legislation and regulation that where they have felt vilified at a time when you know we are rolling back uh, laws. You're talking and, about gun rights advocates. Yes, uh, at at the time we're rolling back laws that are making it easier for um, dangerous criminals. Uh, to be released early from prison and to commit very serious crimes. Can I ask you then um, if you, um, when you say that the statistics show this early release program is not working, that the mm-hmm. recidivism rate is high, what then should the Department of Correction be doing when someone is convicted and sent there? Uh, is it just a matter of, of punishing someone or should there be more efforts to rehabilitate? What should be happening within our prison system? Well, I can tell you even before the early prison release program, in large measure, people weren't completing their entire sentences. That's just a fact. Um, I do support programs that allow people to be rehabilitated. So when they do reenter society, they are uh, law-abiding. They're contributing to society. Um, you know, they're they're in a very meaningful way reacclimating. Uh, I'm absolutely in support of that. Uh, what I am not in support of is uh, not having a delineation between nonviolent and violent. And what I am not in support of is violent people being released early on credits and committing very serious crimes when they are released. Um, you know, it, it is something that, you know, the most solemn obligation of the governor of the state of Connecticut is to protect the people of the state of Connecticut. So if you're not going to invest in public safety and if you're going to pursue policies that compromise public safety, in my opinion, um, you're not doing what you need to do. You also want to restore capital punishment. How would that work? Well, it's going to take a um, a willing partner in the Connecticut Senate and the Connecticut House. Uh, look, I can tell you that when this was repealed, uh, 64% of Connecticut um, citizens supported keeping capital punishment. After the Cheshire home invasion, 74% of Connecticut residents supported capital punishment, specifically as it related to that crime. Uh, When the legislature repealed the death penalty, what the legislature was told by the governor and his uh, staff at the time was that the repeal would not be retroactive. We were told it would be prospective. We were told that it would not impact those already on death row, namely uh, the individuals that had committed the slayings in Cheshire. And what's disturbing is on a four to three vote, the Connecticut State Supreme Court in State versus Santiago rolled back retroactively the death penalty in contravention to the will of the legislature and the representations that were made. So if I'm elected governor, I'm going to honor the will of the people of the state of Connecticut that said overwhelmingly and consistently they supported it. So I would ask the Senate and the House to adopt legislation that is um, similar to what Governor Romney proposed in Massachusetts in 2005, I believe, where if you put it back on the books, I want it to be heavily reliant on DNA-based evidence to guarantee that there are no mistakes with respect to a conviction. But if you're talking about cutting uh, spending and cutting costs, uh, it's been well documented that uh, the capital punishment in the state of Connecticut mm-hmm. was costing taxpayers lots of money, as well as, you know, there has been a lot of studies that show is capital punishment really a deterrent for violent crime? Well, I can tell you, I could probably make an argument to you that the early prison release program with 95 percent being released early and then going back in probably cost the state a lot of money, too. 
uh, it's a question of priorities. It's a question of what we believe um, is a deterrent. And the prosecutors and police officers and law enforcement officials that I have spoken to feel very strongly that it isn't not only a deterrent, but it, it is a useful tool in helping them secure um, convictions that perhaps are not to that level. Oh, we're going to be running out of time soon. I want to make sure we get to um, several questions. But um, before we take some listener calls, uh, also this law and order plan uh, again. And that terminology, did you pick that? Because that was something that when President Trump was running for office, that's something that, that he really stressed. So you're really trying to appeal to the base with this law and order plan. Well, I've heard the term law and order long before Donald Trump was president of the United States. So so for me, it's honoring the rule of law and having order in our society. It's that simple. Something that also is in your plan, and this will resonate with uh, the cities in Connecticut. Again, if you're elected uh, governor of Connecticut, uh, you are going to crack down on sanctuary cities. I'm going to read from your plan. When Tim Herbst is governor, there will be no tolerance for radical sanctuary city policies that undermine the rule of law and put communities at risk. So you'd revoke Mm. the Trust Act. And issue a new directive to state and local law enforcement, directing them to follow the new ICE detainer policy and procedures as listed. And sanctuary cities, towns, state universities, colleges, those who follow a sanctuary policy, you would withhold funding from them. Why take that stance? When we know, when we hear from law enforcement, we hear from people in these cities that part of why uh, they have these, uh, you know, this policy uh, mm-hmm. to not punish people who may be living here illegally, who don't have criminal records, at least they know who is in their community. If you take this firm stance, um, they're going to go in the shadows. You're not going to know who's here. Well, one of the things that I've said, and I've been consistent in this, what I want our cities to focus on is anyone here that that is here illegally that is committing crimes, and currently. We don't have a system in place to track uh, those that might be arrested for a crime and to look at data or evidence to show who is here legally or illegally and the number of people that are here illegally that are committing crimes and what types of crimes. Uh, Look, um, I believe very strongly that we are a country and a nation of immigrants. I wouldn't be sitting here in this interview uh, with you this morning if my great-grandparents did not come to this country. But they came here legally. And they played by the rules, and they realized that in this country, there's tremendous opportunity if you work hard and play by the rules. I want people to come here legally. I want people that are here, uh, like the Dreamers, for example, I want them to be able to have a pathway to legal citizenship. What I will be focused on if I'm elected governor are those people that are here illegally, that are committing crimes, uh, that compromise the public health, safety, and welfare of the people of the state of Connecticut. And I just feel very strong. You know, what I find very interesting is that our leaders at the state level have basically scoffed at complying with federal law. Can you imagine if at the local level I told Governor Malloy that I wasn't going to comply with the state law? He would rightfully send his chief legal counsel or the attorney general to court seeking a declaratory action to compel me to comply with state law. It's no different for the states to comply with federal law. But with the Trust Act, uh, they, the state was complying with any detainers for individuals with uh, violent criminal records. Well, I don't think we're doing enough, I will tell you. And, and you know what? I'm talking to the people on the ground, the police officers in these cities that are making the arrests and sharing with me the policies and procedures that they believe should be implemented that aren't being implemented. And quite frankly, that's who uh, leaders should be listening to. You know, we could... We can go under that gold dome and debate the issues all we want. At the end of the day, I want to hear from the, from the boots on the ground that are dealing with the practical implications uh, of, of the laws of the federal government, of the state, 
and of uh, compliance or non-compliance with federal ICE. Uh, again, Tim Herbst in studio here on Where We Live, also on Facebook Live, Republican candidate for governor. Join our conversation. Sarah is calling from Deep River. Sarah, go ahead. Hi, Tim. Um, oh, Sarah, your, your phone is uh, breaking up. Try again. Um, Tim, you're a very staunch supporter of the Second Amendment. I've seen graphs of you holding firearms. Now, you also spent the last week trying to demand mandatory Pledge of Allegiance. She's breaking up. I can't hear her. Sarah, you're breaking up. So you're saying that uh, Tim Herbst is a supporter of the Second Amendment, but um, because of this flag rally that was held the other Mm -hmm. night, uh, uh, being critical Mm -hmm. of this Haddam select woman uh, for kneeling for the Pledge of Allegiance, that you're ignoring the First Amendment. I'm going to just paraphrase uh, her comment. I think that's probably what she asked. So let's let's ask about that. Sure, absolutely. You know what? As I said last night in Haddam, the First Amendment, we don't have a First Amendment but for what that flag represents. We don't have a Second Amendment but for what that flag represents. And the problem that I have with the select woman taking a knee is that she took the same oath of office that I took six times in the town of Trumbull. And I raised my right hand to, to defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Connecticut. We take an oath um, that symbolizes who we are as a people and as a democracy. You know what? I understand she doesn't like President Trump. I get it. Uh, I understand that people don't agree on issues. We disagree on policies. But at the end of the day, that doesn't mean you disrespect the flag and disrespect your country. And, you know, I'm going to be 38 years old next month, and I have never in my lifetime, ever, in my 38 years, seen people kneel during the Pledge of Allegiance. But they have the freedom to do that in this country. They do, and, but that does, and I have the freedom to call it out as an American. You know what? I have First Amendment rights too, and I feel very strongly that it shows complete disrespect for our country, for our flag, for our institutions, for who we are as a people. And one of the things that I respect the most about this country is that we can disagree with each other, but we live in a democracy where we can vote for our leaders, we can vote to change our leaders, we can debate issues, we can compromise on issues without compromising on our principles, but that's what that flag stands for. Can I ask, uh, also in the town of Haddam, a Republican member of the Board of Ed has been kneeling while the pledge was recited. There has not been a lot of, I, I mean, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen widespread reports mm-hmm. of Republicans uh, also saying that this person is wrong of doing that. I said yesterday, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, if you kneel for the flag as a public official during the Pledge of Allegiance, you should resign. I said for both Republicans and Democrats. Again, uh, you're up against four other candidates uh, on the Republican primary. Again, a lot of where you stand, uh, whether uh, to not uh, raise taxes, uh, mm. you know, uh, an ardent supporter of gun rights, as well as this latest uh, um, uh, rally that was held and had him um, asking for this woman to resign because she's kneeling. This, this all appeals to a certain part of the base of the Republican Party. But if you get past the primary, then you've got to appeal to widespread mm. state voters. What about you will do that for them? I think who I am. I think the fact that I come from um, very humble beginnings, the fact that I'm the son of public school teachers, the fact that I'm a product of the public school system here in our state, that I went to college here, I was born here, I was raised here, I'm invested here. And I just don't feel that uh, self-funding candidates that have never won tough elections or been through tough elections can relate 
to, to blue-collar people in our state that are really feeling the effects of this economy. It's a question of being relatable. You know, there are plenty of people that um, don't agree with me on every issue, but they're supporting me because they recognize that I have a practical understanding of what the state's facing. I have a practical understanding of what needs to be done, and I'm committed to making the changes necessary to doing it. And I think people understand that I'm going to be the kind of leader that's going to be honest and straightforward with the people of the state of Connecticut. We uh, only have under a minute. I should say that you've also been endorsed by the Connecticut Citizens Defense League. I started this segment asking if there are certain laws or policies that you would try to roll back. What would happen to uh, the gun laws that have been put in place in the state of Connecticut? What would you do if elected governor? Well, one of the things that I said this morning in the Hartford Current was that, um, and I've told the CCDL this, the practicality of repealing SB 1160 um, is going to be very narrow given the fact that many Republicans also voted in favor of the legislation. So to repeal any legislation, you have to get buy-in from the legislature and the likelihood of getting a majority in the House and Senate to agree to that, given the bipartisan support it had, um, would be difficult. That being said, I think we have plenty of gun control laws in this state. I would veto uh, any additional gun control legislation, and I would insist that any gun control legislation on the books um, make sure that we have the resources in place to enforce. And if we don't, we have to make changes. We have to leave it there. Tim Herbst, thank you so much for coming in. The time uh, is short. Republican candidate for governor. We appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Just ahead, our regular analysts for Where We Live's Meet the Candidate series are back. We're going to hear from political scientists Bilal Sikou and Jonathan Wharton. That's right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, today we've been talking with Tim Herbst, Republican candidate for governor. And as we've done for our other uh, candidate uh, interviews, we've asked uh, two political scientists to provide some analysis of these talking points that the candidates are raising. So I want to welcome back in the studio Dr. Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hilliard College at the University of Hartford. Good morning. And Dr. Jonathan Wharton, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University, also Political Director for Kurt Miller, GOP-endorsed candidate for Connecticut State Comptroller, but today just talking about the gubernatorial race. Thank you both for coming in. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. So let's start with uh, the last point that we brought up, um, and a listener call wanted to ask uh, where, why Tim Herbst has been joining with Art Linares uh, within the General Assembly uh, to uh, ask for the resignation of this Haddam select woman who has been kneeling in protest of President Donald Trump's comments uh, when uh, he and uh, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, were together and uh, what he said about, um, you know, not believing or agreeing that the, the uh, that they interfered with the election, despite what intelligence uh, agencies in our country have um, concluded. So, Jonathan Wharton, when we talk about this issue, is this something that's uh, going to help uh, compel voters to vote for Tim Herbst uh, uh, in, on August 14th, this idea of this person should resign because she's kneeling instead of reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. As a public official, as, as uh, Tim Herbst noted. You know, this is interesting. It's gained a lot of traction because obviously, you know, there was the rally yesterday. Uh, Tim Herbst was actually on Fox last week on Fox and Friends as well discussing it. And of course, it made the front page of the Hartford Current this morning. So it's gaining momentum. There is a great deal of interest in terms of what Art Linares, and he's obviously a candidate for treasurer too, uh, and certainly Tim Herbst has brought out. Is this a big question of freedom of speech? Can a public official then carry this out to their own will, or are they doing it for the will of themselves or for you know their voters? That's a very thorny issue. And 
is gaining momentum, is gaining some interest, would that help out a cause or maybe potentially for both candidates on the Republican ticket? It's a good question to bring up. Bilal. Yeah, that was an interesting exchange. And, you know, as I listened to this debate uh, occur in our country since the NFL protests took place and the president um, helped to draw a lot of attention and hostility towards people who were taking a knee, I sort of, I'm reminded by, at least in my mind, the idea that dissent is as probably as, a, as American as is apple pie. Mm-hmm and that we have a long history in which Americans have dissented. And they have fought for political and social rights through their protests and through their dissent. And I think we can sometimes lose track of the meaning of these protests, which have been around the problem of uh, racism, um, violence on the part of uh, law enforcement, the shooting of unarmed black women, black men, Latino women, Latino men. And so from that standpoint, um, this effort to draw attention to these issues through dissent, again, is what this country is about. And if we think about what the First Amendment really stands for, what people are doing is really what that amendment is about. And so it, uh, you know, it, it may resonate with people who are quite angry about that kind of dissent and are not sensitive or caring about those kinds of issues. But for people who are engaged in that, I say more to it and let's keep doing it. Uh, Jonathan, uh, it's, it, it seems when you look at uh, where Tim Herp stands and how he's been uh, running his campaign, that uh, he is lockstep with a lot of policies and rhetoric that President Trump has used. Is that going to help or hurt him August 14th? Well, it's interesting. He's gained, again, a lot of attention about you know, his law and order stance. And that's gained a lot of interest. And certainly as it relates to gun control, too. I mean, these are issues that are very critical in many parts of Connecticut. I'm speaking more towards the rural areas, specifically the Naugatuck Valley, for example, the eastern side of Connecticut. Uh, It's no secret at the convention in May, we saw that coming out at the floor of the convention. I was at least uh, privileged to at least be a delegate, and I saw that firsthand. There, There are key issues that kind of rally the Republican base that will get them to show up to vote. And that kind of effort, that kind of strategy actually works because they do show up. I have never questioned the Republican on the Second Amendment, my own mother included, by the way, <laughs> because it, it does bring out an issue um, and it resonates with people. It gets them you know, motivated to go out and show up to vote. And that sets him apart from Mark Bowden? Absolutely. I mean, again, those two really do differ on this key issue. And you know, to rally a base... You know, even as, as, as Vincent Hutchings calls it, you know, a, a, a waking sleeping giant principle can get people to show up to the polls. Go ahead, Bilal. So this six-point plan that he is presenting um, is law really— Law and order? Law and order. It's really rooted in a myth, right? And that myth is that crime is out of control. And in that sense, he's talking quite similarly to the way um, President Trump talked when he got elected to office. And, you know, in my mind, this is really a kind of dog whistle, right, because I think there are race and class issues that are entangled with that. So talk about myth, right? The day ran an editorial and pointed out that the prison population is the lowest it's been since 1994. We have the lowest reported crime rates since the 1960s. 
We have had the largest reduction in violent crime of any state in the last four years, and yet Herb said says that crime is out of control. This number he gave on recidivism, and, and again, how people actually sort of um, define recidivism is subject to debate amongst criminologists and sociologists who do that work. That 95% number that he threw out there to me was shocking, and I think probably— it was 90% is what he 90% said, yeah. <laughs> I think was shocking and, and probably is quite high. Mm-hmm. So the problem here is that mass incarceration is not a good thing for society and that we need to figure out ways to reduce our prison population. We need to figure out ways to reduce crime. We need to have good law enforcement. But this idea that we can warehouse people, lock them away, and lock them away for long periods of time without dealing with the social cost of that to communities, to people, to our workforce and productivity is just insane. We've got to go in a different direction. And so it's surprising to hear a politician talk that way today in a way that sounds similar to maybe Nixon's law and order of the late 1960s. He also brought out the capital punishment in terms of how costly that is too and dealing with that as well. That certainly came out as a, as right. a big issue for him too. Oh, I, I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, we, we spent some time at the beginning of the show talking about his record in Trumbull. He yes. certainly talked about how he turned it around. Um, we just got a tweet from someone named Debbie who writes, those of us in Trumbull know what Herbst is really like after eight years of bullying his constituents and threatening people who got in his way for simply voicing an opinion. He has demonstrated time and time again he's unfit to serve as governor. Fill in some of the details on uh, the personality of Tim's Herbst and who who he, uh, you know, who, who he ruffles the feathers of. Since I study mayors for a living, <laughs> <laughs> and this is my research, you know, some people, many Republicans in particular, like that kind of brand of assertiveness in making their issues and, you know, uh, positions known. And it's no secret that as first selectman, he did that. Um, and so I think that's what a lot of people are looking for in a governor is to be... Mm. Assertive. Governor Malloy was assertive, and he's one of the most unpopular governors in our nation. Certainly was, but boy, talk about an issue which you saw right at the beginning that you threw out the questions of about the CBAC agreement, mm-hmm. about reforming, you know, pensions and all these areas. You heard him; he was very pronounced about what he would do, especially in the first forty-five days if he were governor. Many voters want that kind of assertiveness, that kind of aggressiveness. Um, and so uh, that's kind of interesting to me because if you look at the leadership of what he did there in Trumbull. Would that carry over in the governor's mansion? And I think some voters do want that kind of uh, assertiveness right. to deal with unions and mm-hmm. to provide for a lot of the reforms. I'm not saying all, but mm-hmm. some people do want that in a candidate. In fact, I thought it was refreshing that he actually gave specific things that he would actually do. And yes. you know, certainly if he is the candidate who's running for governor on the, on, for the Republicans, he will have a clear agenda in terms of the kinds of areas he would cut. He talked about reorganizing DMV, eliminating the board. Board of Regents for the Connecticut Colleges. Privatizing you know, DSS. Privatizing DSS, mm. selling UConn Health Center. Yes. Um, you know, so he was quite clear about the kinds of things that he would, you know, try to do. And um, Republican voters probably like that. And I wouldn't say all, but I think a number. Mm-hmm. Others would probably see somebody like a, like a you know, Mayor Boughton, who, mm-hmm. who tends to be more centrist instead. Some, some call, yeah, Mayor Boughton a mm-hmm. rhino, Republican in name yes. only. So let's talk about, just with a couple right. minutes left, <laughs> we have five uh, Republican candidates running in the primary August 14th. Um, someone tweeted, I think he, would, he could be a very successful statewide candidate in another state. No matter how much noise Herbst makes, this is Connecticut. He'll be gone in two weeks. 
weeks. Is it that simple when we look at the five candidates and how, depending on who's going to show up to vote right. and the fact that it's going to be spread among these five individuals, could Herbst uh, make it to the general election, Jonathan? Considering there are five candidates, could be possible. Then again, it could be possible with any other candidate. So it's a matter of how much traction can they get between now and certainly, you know, the, the primary, which is scarily only in a couple of weeks now that we're thinking about this. Yeah. Bilal, what about you? Who do you think is going to make it to the general election? <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't consult a crystal ball. But I w- what I will say is that we're likely to see some surprising developments election night. How's that? <laughs> or, or Betty, let me, let me add to the professor's idea. You know, one thing, this might be the year of the businessman, right? Uh, Since, I mean, that could be possible. The Hartford or, outside. Right. Or it could be the year of the mayor. I mean, really, both sides of the aisle. You see that debate taking place among the Democrats and the Republicans. Which, which is really good. The thing that really is good about this election cycle is that you do, in fact, have people who have governing experience at, mm-hmm. the, at the local level as well as people coming from the business. So voters really have some choices in front of them and some very sharp differences in not only style, but also in terms of the way in which they will deal with some of the challenges that the state faces. It's just a matter that they show up. That's what matters for this primary. They really do. Both sides have to. And remind us the percentage of voters who usually show up at a, a Connecticut primary. There's, <laughs> It's pretty abysmal, right? <laughs> it, it really is. It's, it's sad. It's unfortunate. I mean, it varies from obviously from city to city, some mm-hmm. of the wealthier cities. And so some of the candidates who come from places, places like Greenwich, for example, right. or come from you know that area of the state um, turnout tends to be higher. I it could be anywhere from eighteen to forty percent. Yeah, many and, and in many of the urban communities like Bridgeport and Hartford and New Haven and Waterbury, you're likely to see much lower voter turnout turnout rates than what you see in some of the wealthier and, communities. And as a reminder, of course, we have a close primary. So if you're that independent and affiliated voter, which let's face it, right. it's almost forty yep. percent of Connecticut voters, unfortunately, right. sign up for a party because you have until yep. the day before the election to do so. Please make sure you do that. And a lot of our focus, obviously, are on the primaries, but we're also, I mean, when you think about the general election, this is a midterm year, yes. which, generally speaking, turnout is lower in the, in the midterms than during a presidential year election. And so get out the vote efforts on the part of whoever is the eventual candidate for both parties will be quite crucial because, again, the level of turnout tends to be much lower compared to the general election during a presidential year. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much to Balasi Koo and Jonathan Wharton uh, for providing analysis during uh, these uh, gubernatorial candidate uh, interviews here on Where We Live. You can go to our Facebook page. You can see all of the interviews uh, with our candidates, uh, the ones that were able to respond uh, by our deadline. But we want to appreciate you both of you for coming in today. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you. We appreciate it. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to digital producer Carlos Mejia. Carmen Baskoff, Kyone Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>